Acts chapter 13 will be in verse 13 today. We'll be looking at Acts 13, verse 13 through 25. If you would, church family, stand with me as we read God's word together. Acts chapter 13, 13 through 25. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me is one coming, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. Let's pray. Lord God, we come today to your word once again. Lord, this task that we come to each and every week as we come together to open your word, to study your word, to hear from you, God, we come again today. And Lord, like every week that we come, Lord, we come asking, we come needing your grace. Lord, we come asking you would help us to understand your word today. You would help us to see the truth that you have revealed for us through the gospel writer Luke as we read what he has written down for us here, the acts of God. I pray, Lord, that you would direct us, that you would guide us into all truth. Help us today, Lord, to understand the gospel more truly, more rightly, and for it to sink in more deeply in the lives of those here today. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. There is a relatively popular pastor, speaker, author by the name of Andy Stanley. He's a man who in the past few years has made some headlines for several things that he has said, moves that he has made, things that he has done. Specifically, one of the things that Andy Stanley has done that, uh, that really caught a lot of attention and not in a good way was that Andy Stanley, in speaking about the Old Testament, made the claim that the Old Testament needs to be unhitched 
from our faith, that we need to disconnect as Christians, unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. The idea being that the Old Testament, while it served a purpose for the people of Israel, for Christians today, for believers today, it serves no real purpose. It has no real meaning in our lives today. It is useful for a history lesson, perhaps, but with regards to understanding of the gospel, of understanding of who God is, of living rightly as a believer, it serves us little to no value. These were claims that, as you can imagine, caught a lot of attention and claims that for many people, we had hoped that Andy Stanley would back away from, hoped that he would pull back from, that he would repent of. But as has sadly been the case, what has been demonstrated is that this move away from a commitment to the scriptures, and that is the totality of God's word, has led not to more faithfulness, but to less. As we see different moves that this, uh, this pastor, this theologian has done, things that he has said, claims that he has made and things that he is doing. And this should come as no surprise to us. It certainly should come with a lament. It should come with sorrow to see this happening, but it should come as no surprise to us. For any time the word of God is viewed in this way, any time it is said that any part of God's word can be lessened, can be done away with, can be pushed to the side, bad things are going to follow. We have for us recorded all of God's word in the full 66 books of the Bible, and every single bit of it is profitable for believers and is essential to rightly understanding God's plan of redemption. And the the, the cool thing that we see here today as Paul is preaching this sermon is that Paul would have had serious issues with Andy Stanley's approach. Because what we see in Paul's sermon today is a serious and wholehearted commitment to all of God's word from the beginning, Genesis through the end. Paul, in this sermon here today that he begins in the book of Acts chapter 13, goes directly to the law and the prophets. He goes directly to the Old Testament. He does not dispense with it, but rather finds it to be necessary for this proclamation of the gospel that he delivers here today. And so as we look at this sermon by Paul, as he now stands, as we know, just beginning, just barely started on his missionary journey, his first missionary journey, we see this, what is going to be for us part one of a two-part look at this great sermon that Paul delivers here, one of the first real sermons by Paul recorded for us in the New Testament. And while we are not going to look at the entirety of the sermon today, we can get a good idea as we see what Paul is doing. We get a good idea of where Paul is going, where he will ultimately end up, that is with Christ. And what I think we will be seeing, what we will see today and what we will find to be important today is where Paul begins and where he focuses his efforts. And it is in no place other than the Old Testament. And the main body of our section here today, this portion of scripture that we have, the main body of it is dedicated to Paul's preaching of the gospel as he is recalling to the minds of his audience all the ways in which God was faithful to his people, all the ways in which God showed his grace to his people Israel throughout their history. What Paul is showing to his listeners, and, and we understand this is a, he's in a synagogue, so this is primarily a Jewish 
audience that is either made up of Jews or those who also are what we would call God-fearers, those who recognize that the Jews worship the one true God and desire to participate in that worship. And he now stands before them here today, reminding them, pouring out for them the history of God's people, the history of the Jews, the history of the people of Israel. And in doing so, he is laying out for them to bear a history of grace. For indeed, what we see saturated all throughout the Old Testament, much to uh, Andy Stanley's dismay and all those who would seek to undo the Old Testament and misunderstand the Old Testament, what we actually see is that in the Old Testament is a dramatic display of grace, God's loving kindness toward his people. So Paul gives a broad overview here for us of the Old Testament. As we see, he, he literally goes from the people in Egypt all the way up to John the Baptist in the course of just a few verses. This is not a detailed look, though he might have said more than this, but Luke only recorded a portion. All that we have recorded for us here and all that is necessary for us here is what we would call a, an overview of the history of grace to God's people. This is a history of grace. And if we are going to understand this rightly as a history of grace, God showing his grace to his people, we need to start with the question of what is grace? For unless you have a proper understanding of what grace is, you're never going to rightly understand how God interacts with his people, and you're never going to rightly understand the gospel. And so let's start there. What is grace? As the scriptures show us God's grace, as the, the word is used throughout the scriptures, we can come to what has been a a kind of the staple definition throughout church history, and I think rightly so, and that is that grace is unmerited favor. It is God's unmerited favor. It is undeserved kindness. It is unearned affection. That is, grace is the opposite of some sort of mutual transaction where we give something to God, and in exchange, he shows us, he gives us his grace. Rather, what grace is, is an utterly unmerited, undeserved display of God's favor and love and affection. And we see this kind of display throughout the passage as the Apostle Paul preaches. Now, there is some preliminary verses as we get started, some, some information that Luke gives us, and, and I never want to gloss over anything too quickly. Everything that Luke tells us is important regarding their travels, and indeed, there's there's a particular portion in the first, uh, first verse of our passage here today in verse 13. That is that word that John left and returned to Jerusalem. We're going to look at this more in a couple chapters in chapter 15 because if you, if you know a little bit about the book of Acts and about the history of, of Paul and Barnabas, you'll know that there is coming in just a couple chapters a split where Paul and Barnabas are going to part ways and it's going to be over this event right here where Luke, in passing, says, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. This event, which we're given very little detail about here, is going to come up again later, and we're going to look at that then. But for now, we're going to look primarily at the words that Paul delivers, the sermon that he preaches here in the synagogue to his audience. And we're going to see specifically how he extols the grace of God and lays it out to bear for the people We'll see this in four different ways. Point number one of four. We see the grace of God in choosing his people. As Paul begins this sermon in 16 and 17, 
he begins by saying, men of Israel and all you who fear God, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in Egypt. Where does Paul begin with this proclamation of the gospel? He begins in a place that we might not first expect him to begin. He begins in no place else than the doctrine of election. He begins, he starts with election. Not a place that many of us begin our gospel proclamations, right? When most of us begin to extol the gospel, to teach the gospel, most, we're not going to start with election, right? In fact, when we hear that, we think that's like the most controversial, difficult doctrine to be found in the scriptures, and you're just going to start there? But what do we see Paul do? That's where he starts. He starts by pointing to the grace of God and choosing a people for himself in order to set them apart from among the nations and in order to pour out his grace, his love, and his kindness upon them. The question of why God would choose Israel is a worthy question. Why did God choose Israel? Why did he choose to, to pour out his love and his kindness and his affection upon this nation and to set them apart and not others? We might think, well, there was something about them, right? They must have been some great nation. There must have been something particularly likable about this people that God would, would show them his grace, his affection over the others. But actually, that's not the case. In fact, the question is, is sort of approached in Deuteronomy chapter 7. In the Old Testament, God approaches this very question with his people. He speaks to them and says in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But here's the reason. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What's the reason that, that God gives for why he has lavished his his grace and his love and his kindness out, why he has showed favor to the people of Israel. The question, though frustrating for some, as to why he chose to love and show his kindness and favor to his people, the answer is because he loves and shows his kindness to his people. That is, nothing in Israel caused God, motivated him, moved him to lavish them with his grace. It is solely God's good pleasure, his will, his loving kindness that drove him, that motivated him to pour out his favor upon Israel. God chose his people because of grace, because of unmerited favor, not because of anything in them, nor was it because of anything to be found in Abraham specifically. In fact, if you remember when God chose Abraham, what was he? He was not what we would call a God-fearer. Indeed, Abraham is described as one who, along with his father, worshipped other gods, worshipped idols. Abraham, Abram as he was called then, was a pagan. 
There was nothing in him that the Lord looked at and said, you know what? He deserves my favor. He deserves my love. Because he is just so, ugh, whatever it is, I'm going to lavish him with my love. It was not because of anything in Abram, but because of God's good pleasure and his will that he chose Abram, that he worked faith in him and that he made a covenant with him to produce through him many offspring. God chose a people who didn't deserve to be chosen. The same is true of God's election of sinners unto salvation, isn't it? That just like the people of Israel did nothing to deserve God's favor, to deserve to be chosen by God, redeemed from Egypt, yet that's exactly what God did. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, says, Let us then ascribe the whole work of grace to the pleasure of God's will. God did not choose us because we were worthy, but by choosing us makes us worthy. We are worthy because of what God has already done in us, because God has chosen us. None of us enters into salvation. None of us will enter into the kingdom of heaven because we stand before God and have something in us that is worthy. But because we stand before God clothed in Christ's righteousness, because God chose to redeem us, chose to clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. The doctrine of election is one of the most beautiful and right displays of God's grace unto believers. Let us never be ashamed. Let us never shy away from this doctrine of election. In this doctrine is a beautiful and clear picture of God's grace on display. The fact that God chose to save sinners based on nothing in them, based on nothing that they would ever do or that they would ever bring in exchange, but solely motivated by his own love and kindness did he choose me and did he choose you unto salvation. There is no more graphic display of God's grace. The moment you begin to think, as many do, that there was something that, that we did, that I did, that the Lord looked at, saw me do that thing and said, now because he did that thing, I'm going to show my grace to him. I'm going to choose him. That's not grace. That's a mutual exchange. That is us bringing something and the Lord honoring that and showing us his grace. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the Lord looks at us as sinful, broken, wretched people the same way Abram was a pagan and says, I'm going to lavish my love, my favor upon you because of my own will and my own good pleasure and my own love and kindness. Not because of anything in us. The moment we lose sight of that the moment we, is the moment we begin to misunderstand God's grace. Let us never be ashamed of this doctrine, but let us hold to it, cling to it, and take great comfort in it because this is grace. Point number two, not only does God show his grace by choosing a people, but the grace of God is on display in his blessing of his people. Verses 18 through 19 say, and about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. <laughs> One of the most amazing displays of patience, probably in all of history, but certainly I think if we look in the scriptures, one of the most amazing displays 
of patience seen in the scriptures is the way God cares for and blesses this ungrateful horde of grumblers known as the people of Israel. These complainers, these idolaters, who every chance they get, every time an obstacle comes their way, they complain, they grumble, and they gripe. And oftentimes, when that happens, they then, they then turn to idols, begin worshiping other gods, begin worshiping the gods of the pagans. Regularly forsaking their God, complaining against their God, forgetting his love and his kindness towards them, who redeemed them out of Israel. And yet, so often we find them in the wilderness, griping and complaining over the very display of God's sustaining power to give them food to eat on a daily basis. The passage says, about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. I think that's pretty good terminology, isn't it? God put up with the people of Israel. But not only did he just put up with them, did he tolerate them, it wasn't just a run-out-the-clock situation for God so he could be done with these grumbling, complaining, wicked people. But he gave them an inheritance. Despite all of their grumbling, at the end of those years, he blessed them. He could have done something else, right? God could have said, you have not done anything but complain and disobey me and turn to other gods since we left Egypt. I'm done with you. You can stay in this wilderness and rot for all I care. God would have been justified in doing that, wouldn't he? Absolutely he would have been. But that's not what God did. God blessed a people who didn't deserve to be blessed. And saw them through the wilderness. Brought them into the land of promise. Cleansed it of the people. And gave them their inheritance. Even though they didn't deserve it. He brought them out of the wilderness and blessed them with a home. Same with us. As the people of God, we find ourselves in a sort of wilderness. Where we are wandering in the desert as the song we sang, Oh Give Thanks, declares. We find ourselves in this place where we are looking for a home. We are looking for our inheritance and it is not yet here. And so often we find ourselves grumbling, complaining, Bitter, even bitter towards God for the estate we find ourselves in. I've heard it said this way, and I think this is a helpful example. Imagine there was a man who was driving his car to go get an inheritance. He had just discovered that this uncle that he knew nothing about, didn't even know he was related to, who was filthy rich, had billions of dollars, just passed away and named him as the sole recipient of all that money. The amount of money that would have changed his life forever, the kind of money people only dream about. And what if this man, while he was driving to go and claim his inheritance, his car broke down in the last mile of the trip? And this man, about to go claim an inheritance that's going to radically change his life, did nothing but grumble and complain and gripe and moan the whole mile there because his car broke down and he had to walk a whole mile. Grumbling, complaining, bitter at his lowly estate in this crummy situation. We would think that man foolish, would we not? We would think that was the dumbest thing we've ever heard. And yet, as believers, what awaits us but the most amazing, beautiful inheritance that anyone could ever imagine? 
And what are we prone to do? While we, as we face this light and momentary affliction here on this earth, wait, do we not oftentimes grumble, complain, act bitter towards God and towards those around us? Forgetting the fact that what awaits us is an eternal inheritance, a hope beyond all comparison? God has just as much right to look at us in our complaining and our grumbling and our disobedience as we turn to other things to satisfy and to do the same thing he would have been right to do to the people of Israel and say, I'm done with you. I've offered you this inheritance. I've given it to you. And all you've done is complain and turn towards other things. But does God do that to his people? No. Not only does he not do that to the people of Israel, but to those of us in here in this place today who are trusting in Christ, he has not and will not forsake us. Even when we grumble, even when we complain, even when we act in sin and turn to other things to satisfy, our God is faithful and he will see us home. He will bring us to the inheritance that he has promised us in Christ Jesus. So we see the grace of God and blessing his people. But we also, point number three, see the grace of God in sustaining his people. Verses 20 through 22 describe kind of this season of rulers that the people of Israel go through, starting in verse 20 with the judges. All this took about 450 years, and after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Notice, he gave them judges. We don't often think about the judges in the life of Israel and, and this age and how it was a display of God's grace. But that's exactly what it was. The judges were a clear and undeniable display of God's grace and his love and his kindness towards his people. For these were men that God raised up divinely, divinely raised up when Israel needed a leader, he would raise up just the man that Israel needed. And in that, show his sustaining and show his grace to his people. Leaders that were raised up by God to meet the, meet the needs of the people, oftentimes in the distress that they found them in, found themselves in because of what they had done. Where the people would, would turn to wicked ways and would reject their God, would turn to false gods and worship idols. And then when things would go poor for them, when their enemies would surround them, they would cry out to the Lord. And what did the Lord do? He didn't turn his back on them, but he showed them his sustaining grace and raising up leaders in the form of judges to care for them, to look after them, to be there for them. Yahweh sustained and cared for his people throughout all kinds of trials and difficulties, some of them that were even self-inflicted and some that were not. I'll tell you, one of the self-inflicted things that the Lord saw his people through was even the very first king they had. Verse 21 says, they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. In particular, Israel had to deal with, deal with some very difficult and wicked kings, and in fact, the very first king they had was one of those kings. A king who looked the part, he was tall, he was handsome, he looked kingly, but turned out to be a man of wickedness, a man of treachery. Saul was in himself, in a sense, a judgment that was self-imposed upon the people by themselves. For what is it that motivated, what is it that caused them to end up with a king in the first place? 
It was their cry. The people of God cried out, saying, Give us a king so that we might be like the nations around us. And in doing so, as God tells Samuel, they were not rejecting Samuel as their prophet, but they were rejecting God. Their cry for a king was a rejection of God's authority. A rejection of God's rule. A declaring to God, your sustaining, your rule is not good enough for us. We want to look like the nations around us. And so what does God do? He gives them a king. And he warns them through the prophet Samuel that having a king is not all it's cracked up to be. And boy, don't they find that out. And Saul and in a whole line of kings to come on later. If God were to conduct himself in the way that earthly fathers do, what would he have done in this situation? Earthly fathers, when a, a, a son or daughter is living in our house, what is our rule, even as they, as they are grown? My house, my rules, right? That was the rule in our house. My mom always said, my house, my rules. And if you get to a certain age and you disobey those rules, you refuse to submit to the authority of your parents, What's liable to happen to you? You can go find your own place to live. You can go find your own house. You can go on to someone else, see if they will take care of you the way I do. Does God do that to his people? No, he does not. Even as they shake their fist at God and reject his authority over their lives, what does he do? He blesses them. He sustains them and gives them a king. Not only does he give them a king, but as we see in verse 21 and 22... He gives them a great king and raises up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do my will. And Paul now brings his listeners to David, the great king of Israel, the one that Israel thinks of when they think of what a king should be. They think of David. God shows his grace by sustaining his people people who reject his authority and gives them a king, a sinful king as we know, but a good king and a king that would point the way and would lead to a much greater and better king. In the same way that God graciously cares for and guides the sinful people of Israel, he sustains and guides us even through much self-imposed difficulties. For as believers, don't we oftentimes find ourselves in situations where we know full well our sin is what got us into the situation we're in. We know that our sin is our biggest enemy. That thing which we are called to turn from, to repent of, to turn over to God is often what gets us into all kinds of bad situations. And yet even through that, God's grace is sufficient and he sustains his people and he draws us back to himself. Point number four, the grace of God in redeeming his people. Paul moves quickly from from the judges to Saul to David. In three verses, he goes all the way from the judges to, to the very first two kings, including the greatest king that Israel ever had, and moves directly from there to Jesus. And this is where, likely, his Jewish listeners would have begun to squirm. Up to this point, they would have heard everything he said of what God has done for his people, how he brought us out of Egypt, 
how he sustained us and, and bore with us in the wilderness, how he raised up for us judges and kings, even the great king David. He probably was getting some amens by the, the Jews there at this point. But then what does he say in verse 23? Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. This is where it gets more difficult for the Jewish hearers. And he turns not just to Jesus, but to the one who prepared the way for him, for to John the Baptist, who brings the word of God to the people, the very last of the prophets that would come and be pointing to a coming Messiah. John was the last. He was the forerunner of Christ. He was coming in the same footsteps of Elijah and Elisha and the great prophets, pointing to one who would come, who would redeem God's people, but not pointing into the distant future and not pointing to one who would reign on a physical throne, but pointing to a man named Jesus, the carpenter, the lowly, humble servant of God. God sent Christ to redeem a people who didn't deserve to be redeemed. After all that Israel had done to cause God to abandon his commitment to the covenants that he had made with his people, he still sent them his redeemer. Just as he said, the root of Jesse, it is by David's line that Christ came to redeem God's people. God's commitment to his people never once wavered. His grace never ends, not because of anything in them, not because of anything in us, but solely because of his kindness and his love. There are two things that we can see with certainty. As we look at Paul's overview of the Old Testament here, as he's beginning his sermon, there's two things that we can look at and we can see from Israel's history. The first is that the Jews were an utterly unworthy people. This is undeniable. As you look throughout Jewish history, as you read your Old Testament, you will see over and over again the people of God failing to live up to the covenant that they made with God, failing to obey him, turning to other gods, rebelling, sinning, complaining, you name it. Every step of the way, what is proven and what is evident is that the Israelites, the Jews, the people were unworthy. We see ourselves in Israel, don't we? We should. For we are a people who are utterly unworthy. From the moment we're born into this earth, we are unworthy of God's favor, unworthy of his love and affection. Even after he saves us, are we worthy? Not in ourselves, but only in Christ. But when we survey our lives, the reason we confess our sin each and every week as a congregation is because when we survey our lives, even this week, we see that this week we have lived unworthy of God's favor, unworthy of God's love and his kindness. And how has that changed God's love and his kindness towards us? Goose egg. Not one bit. God's love, God's kindness towards you has not wavered a moment, though you have strayed, though you have sinned, though you have failed. Which is the second thing that we see is that Yahweh is an unbelievably gracious God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news of God's great grace. Indeed, salvation is entirely a work of grace. And that's what Paul is guiding his readers to see. He is guiding them to see in their history the grace of God on display. 
as we think through the gospel, as we proclaim the gospel to those around us, this ought to be our emphasis, is the grace of God, unmerited favor, unearned kindness, God's love shown to us for nothing in us. And it's a concept that's difficult for humans to understand, isn't it? For we have a difficult time understanding the idea of grace. That, that one would show kindness, show grace, show favor and love towards another based on nothing in them. For unfortunately, most of our relationships are built not in that way, but are more transactional. And when someone does something against us to no, no longer earn our favor, then don't we withdraw that favor? And happily so. The idea of grace, though is understandable to us, is difficult because we are sinful, fallen human beings. But the grace that we see displayed through Christ Jesus, through redemption as God sent his son to redeem a people, is utterly alien to us. For it is a work of pure grace. That while many human relationships can involve grace, there is almost always some level of transaction involved, but not so with God. His relationship with his people is one of pure and utter grace. There is nothing in you, there is nothing in me, there is nothing in anyone in this world that should motivate God to save us. Nothing. It is only by God's great love and his kindness and his grace that he should lavish, lavish us with such riches. Let that be a humbling thought to you today. A thought that humbles you. A thought that you see your sin, but you see what God has done for you in spite of that, and rejoice in what he has done. And let the grace of God be what saturates all of our gospel thought and all of our gospel conversation, for indeed, the gospel is a gospel of grace. Let's pray.